Welcome to Feed, a food systems podcast presented by Table, a collaboration between the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Wageningen University. I'm Samara Brock. And I'm Matthew Kessler. Today we're speaking with Felipe Roa Clavio, who is currently a researcher at the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative and a visiting research fellow at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, monitoring the rural reform of the 2016 Columbia Peace Agreement. Felipe completed his PhD at the University of Oxford in International Development and has a book coming out in October 2021 called The Politics of Food Provisioning in Colombia, Agrarian Movements and Negotiations with the State. Then all of a sudden I found myself sitting on the back of a room seeing how the Minister of Agriculture was negotiating their agenda points with the agrarian movements. And that was really bringing like my research alive in that they were discussing about food security versus food sovereignty. They were discussing subsidies for the countryside and for poor farmers having access to, to bank and finances. Today we dive into the Colombian food system and the different scales at which food is produced and consumed. We discuss different narratives about food provisioning in Colombia and find out which groups are promoting these different visions to feed the village, feed the nation, and feed the world. We explore why these kinds of debates offer valuable entry points to addressing systemic issues. We also chat about what is unique about the Colombian food system and how it compares to the rest of Latin America. We don't delve too deep into the complex history and background surrounding the violence and peace talks in Colombia as we try to keep the conversation focused on the agrarian movements and food system. But of course, these are somewhat inseparable from each other, so we'll provide some context throughout. And before getting into this conversation, we first asked Felipe for a quick introduction by way of describing his favorite Colombian meal. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thrilled to be uh, here in the program with you guys. And my name is Felipe Roaclavijo, and I am based in Bogota, Colombia. My favorite uh, Colombian dish is called ajiaco. Ajiaco is a potato soup uh, with chicken. It's a very Andean uh, dish because it, it uses three different types of, of potato. So a uh, uh, sort of white potato, sort of brown potato and a yellow potato and then it mix all in a in a thick soup uh, with chicken um, and you add um, sour cream uh, capers and uh, of course corn which is one of our most important crops here and it's a delicious dish that i really like well, that sounds fantastic and one day when we're not all doing remote interviews it would be nice to to share a meal with you so felipe we're very excited to speak with you about your new book Politics of Food Provisioning in Colombia, Agrarian Movements and Negotiations with the State, which centers what sounds like a simple question, but certainly isn't, how should Colombia feed itself? So as I understand, writing this book was a development from your PhD dissertation. Can you share your own personal journey of how you came to focus on this topic? My journey uh, started 15 years back. Uh, when I was a development practitioner working in southern Colombia, one of the most affected areas by, by the violent conflict. In this context, I, I met agrarian leaders working, you know, the grassroots level, and they were working in all sorts of development projects to help bring about peace in, in, this, in this very conflict-prone region. 
and many of these projects were 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 about food, were about feeding uh, the villages, the cities that were around. And I was blown away by by their creativity, uh, by their vision, and by their hopes for the future. At that stage, I was a very young professional at the time. But interestingly, uh, ten years later, we met again. This time, uh, I was a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I met these leaders again in the context of the agrarian negotiations. So these leaders that I had met at the local level in uh, doing grassroots work were now at the national level having conversations face to face with the government in the spirit of bringing opportunities to the countryside, which has suffered of poverty uh, and inequality and uh, violence. So that's in a nutshell the journey and, and how, I, how I, I got started with this. So chiming in here with a very abbreviated background, Colombia has been in different stages of armed conflict since the 1960s, with clashes between the government, far-right paramilitary groups, and far-left guerrilla groups, including the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, also known as FARC. Many believe that it was the redistribution of land in the 1920s that precipitated the structural inequalities which have caused this long-standing conflict over the last half century. And you'll hear Felipe refer to the agrarian strike and negotiations that began in 2013, where hundreds of thousands of farmers blocked roads and cut off supply chains. They were demanding government assistance and better support for farmers. As we discussed in previous episodes in relation to other contexts, the price of food and income for farmers remained stagnant in Colombia during this period, while the costs of fuels and other agricultural inputs continued to rise. My book studies the agrarian strikes of 2013 and 2014 and the negotiations thereafter between 2014 to 2018. And the, the main questions I'm asking in, in the context of, of these agrarian uprisings a few years back are, what are the emerging debates of food in Colombia? Colombia has had a tradition of focusing a lot on land distribution because that's a huge structural problem. The, there's a lot of inequality in, in land distribution in Colombia, and that has been an important focus along with human rights. But what I found in the book, and, and my main question is, what are the new debates uh, of, of rural development, food and agriculture uh, in Colombia? And particularly, what are the new narratives of food that, that emerge in the context of these agrarian strikes? We'll dive into those narratives in a bit. But before sort of getting into ideas about the future of the food system, I thought it would be important to try and understand the history. So can you talk about how the Colombian food system has changed in the last 50 years and, and what it looks like today? So there are, I would say, five main areas of transformation. And you, you ask for how has it changed? That in fact, there are things that have changed and things that have not changed at all. And I see this through five main lenses. So first one is uh, rural poverty and inequality is one of the elements that has not changed. Rural poverty is higher than in the cities, is higher than the national average. There are 12 million people in the countryside. So we, we live in a country that is uh, 50 million people and 25% uh, of those, so more or less uh, 12 million people live in rural areas. But these, these people living in rural areas are, are poorer than those living in the cities. 
And this is a, a historic problem. Of course, the country is today mostly urban. So almost 80% of the population live, live today in the cities. So the 12 million people uh, living in the countryside, I like to think of it as a country. That's the size, the population size of Switzerland or Sweden. And so I like to think of the Colombian countryside as a country, but uh, a country that has been left behind mainly by, by poverty, social services, infrastructure, and economic development. The second lens Felipe looks at is hunger and malnutrition. More than half of the Colombian population, 52%, are experiencing some level of food insecurity, either in the form of obesity or undernutrition. The third lens that I like to highlight is the environmental impacts and biodiversity loss. So Colombia has been focusing a lot on agricultural development, export-oriented ag agriculture because of the, all of the opportunities that free trade agreements bring and also because there's demand of food. But this is driving biodiversity loss and that's hugely concerning because activities such as uh, agro-industrial crops or livestock, uh, cattle ranching are driving deforestation and biodiversity loss. The fourth driver Felipe points to is violence and rural transformation. In the last 50 years, the violent conflict has killed over 2 million people and displaced around 7 million people, which has especially impacted those living in rural areas. And the fifth and last element of this food systems transformation is, uh, and I, I like to use this phrase from Professor Tim Lang and Michael Hisman, is, is the an emerging battle for mouths minds and markets. So because Colombia is today a mainly urban country and it has expanded its, its 50 million population, uh, there, there, there are different actors uh, trying to uh, gain access to markets, trying to uh, sell food. And, and this battle has gone beyond the national borders and it's now like a global battle uh, for these mouth minds and markets. And so we see that uh, the food industry sector has expanded rapidly, particularly in the last decade. And it's not only high in actions or, or impact here in, in, in Colombia selling, for example, processed foods, uh, but also in other countries of South America, Central America, and even in the US. So I think these five elements, rural poverty, hunger and malnutrition, environmental impacts and biodiversity loss, violence and rural transformation and this emerging battle for mouths, mind and markets have marked uh, important uh, milestones in this transformation over the last 50 years. Thanks for such a comprehensive overview. Picking up on the mouths, minds and markets piece and thinking about the future of Colombia, given this context that you've laid out for us, how do you think about sort of the regional, national, or international food provisioning when it comes to the country? And what are the different narratives taking place that will shape that future? So that was one of the main focus uh, of my book. One of the main questions I was asking was, what are the main narratives that have emerged? And what do these narratives tell us about how the country has changed over the past decades? So what I found is that there is a dominant narrative or, or a mainstream uh, narrative that uh, says we should feed the world. Right? Colombia is a, a food powerhouse that is able to feed the world. And so the narrative goes, Colombia should become a world breadbasket. 
what this means is uh, that the country should have an export-oriented agriculture and should focus on the demand that countries uh, across the world are generating. So that's a, a narrative that has been promoted mainly by the state, by the private sector, mainly you know, large corporations, and supported by uh, the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank. So there's like a huge opportunity, a huge market opportunity for food in Colombia and abroad. So while the Feed the World narrative is outwardly promoted, Felipe also found two other narratives connected to the different agrarian movements that he was speaking to. So a second narrative, it's about feeding the country or feeding the nation. And with these, these agrarian movements, which are not what we would think Colombian agrarian movement will be, because we are talking about here of entrepreneurs, uh, people who are focusing on the market, who are profit-oriented. And so they are looking at the, at the domestic market and all the opportunities that it creates. But then there's a third narrative, second alternative narrative, and this uh, is from movements that are mostly made by indigenous communities, African Colombian communities, and farmers. And so who are often landless, marginalized, and, and often very poor. What this grad movement is proposing is to feed the village or feed the local spaces. So they are thinking actually in starting at the very local level and, and trying to promote self-sufficiency and domestic agriculture, but at the very local level. So these three, three narratives, and I like to call this feeding the village, the nation, uh, or the world. So it's important to put these narratives into a historical context. Can you talk about what you call in the book, the hidden battles of food provisioning? Sure. So what, what I try to do in, in the third chapter of, of my book, The Hidden Battles of, of Food Provision, is, is I try to historicize food, right? It, it is a very new debate. We are still getting familiar of what it means to speak about food today and the future of food. But in this chapter, I go back in time to try to reconstruct the history of food. And what I found was fascinating. On, on the, the one hand, uh, you know, there have been several attempts of land reform uh, in the past. The first being in the 70s, uh, another one in the 80s, and another one in the 90s. All of them failed, mainly because of the landowners' opposition to this land reform. So there was no way of having, you know, a comprehensive land reform in the past year. So these failures also mark the story of the importance of food, because later on uh, in the 90s, there were perhaps one key moment, but two divergent paths. The first one was Colombia renew its constitution, right? The last constitution was written in 1886, so it was quite outdated. And so in, in 1991, the country rewrites its constitution uh, to show how the country had changed to include, you know, a significant rights uh, approach to the country and to the constitution. And one of the rights that was established in the constitution was the right to food. Uh, and the right to food included protecting domestic agriculture, protecting farmers, and fostering you know, agricultural production as a priority of the country. But in opposition to that, and at the same time, the country followed the Washington consensus, which was recommending you know, to open the economy, 
to uh, liberalize uh, the economy, to stop subsidies to small farmers. So in practice, what happened to these policies was the opposite of what the constitution was just saying. So what happened in practice was national uh, or domestic production was not prioritized anymore. And this is when the new food imports start arriving in the country, particularly grain imports coming from the US and, and Canada. All the support to smallholders also stops and uh, all um, investment in science, technology and innovation for the countryside um, also stops. So the 90s mark a very important period in bringing about a structural conflict that we are, are seeing today. On the, on the one hand, the free trade agreements that are, are very important, very strong today. And on the other hand, millions of smallholders that have been left behind. First, I'd like to understand better who's involved in these debates and who's pushing these narratives. You've already named some of those food systems actors, but I'm sure the on-the-ground reality is a bit more complicated than that too. Perhaps a way into this topic is to ask you about how you conducted your research for your book, especially the fieldwork part. So who did you decide to interview and what did you learn about some of these relationships, such as the negotiations between the government and agrarian movements? So in my research design, I, I decided to interview since I was studying the strikes and then the uh, agrarian negotiations. I interviewed 138 people across Colombia, mainly in the capital city of Bogota, but also in the department of Nariño and in the department of Meta. And I interview people from both sides. So I interview agrarian leaders from two main agrarian movements that emerged uh, in the context of, of the agrarian strikes. I also interview government officials. And while I was in this process, uh, I also gained access to the negotiations that were ongoing as I was doing my fieldwork. And I found this fascinating. All of a sudden, I found myself sitting on the back of a room, seeing how the Minister of Agriculture was negotiating their agenda points with the agrarian movements. And that was really bringing like my research alive in that they were discussing about food security versus food sovereignty. They were discussing subsidies for the countryside and for poor farmers, having access to, to bank and finances. They, they were, there were a lot of things they, they were discussing, but for me, it was very special to be part uh, of, of these negotiations uh, as an observer. And it also helped me to provide more details and to identify who was you know, participating in, in all of this. And I found that while I thought there was you know, a single body or a single agrarian movement involved in, in the protest, I found that there, there were in fact two agrarian movements involved, right? One of them is called Cumbre Agraria, and Cumbre Agraria is a coalition of indigenous, African, Colombian, and peasant groups. Uh, mainly coming from marginalized backgrounds. The second agrarian movement is called Dignidad Agropecuaria, and it has a different organization. So it's not organized by, you know, it's not an identity group as is Cumbre Agraria, but this is organized by uh, value chains. So they have a coalition of value chain representatives, and among others, there were you know, milk producers and all their stakeholders. They were potato producers and all the stakeholders. They were tomato producers and all the stakeholders uh, around. So it's it's an agrarian movement 
uh, or a coalition where uh, agrarian value chains uh, participate. And then on the other side of the table was the government, uh, mainly uh, the Minister of Agriculture and the Minister of Interior as the main representatives of the national government uh, engaging in conversations with, with agrarian movements. But I also interview the local governments. So municipal governments and departmental governments were also involved. And what I found is there are different, different visions even within the agrarian groups and between the agrarian groups. And it happened on the state side. There were different visions and different interests in the national government within the national government, but also between the national and local government. So it was a quite complex scenario, but I think in my book, I managed to analyze and address this complexity of actors and their interests. I don't know if you're allowed to discuss this or not, but I'm really curious, what was the feeling like in the room during those negotiations? Did it feel like a formal process? Was it tense? Were people shouting? Can you describe a little bit of the vibe or the environment? It it changed from, from time to time. So I was able to attend uh, several negotiation sessions. One thing that I found striking was that most of these negotiations started with the human rights situation. So even before they could start addressing their agenda, the agrarian movements will start saying, we need to address the human rights situations because there are killings of social leaders in the field, in the countryside. There are people being displaced. And so the environment could be tense when it started like this. Many times the negotiations could not be actually started with what was on the agenda because they were still discussing human rights situation. But I really like the breaks, like in, the, in, in between the breaks, you know, the Minister of Agriculture will, will go out, smoke a cigarette, take some fresh air, and then they will be all of a sudden laughing with, with the agrarian leaders. So as long as, as there is dialogue, as there, there are very deep conflicts and historical conflicts uh, sitting at the table, right? More than 50 years of violent conflict, 50 years of land inequality. And yet they were able to sat at the same table and have formal conversations without the use of violence. So you said that through your research, you were able to identify some of the key interests that different groups had. In your book, you sort of complicate binaries like food sovereignty versus food security, and also try and complicate things like food regime theory and focus more on narratives. Can you tell us what you think it is about narratives that can help us understand where different people are coming from in food systems debates? I used uh, narratives as a unit of analysis in my book. I found that uh, narratives are extremely useful because it allows you to better understand how people frame progress and actually what parts of the food system they're looking at. So I follow a little bit the the pathways approach uh, of the STEP Center which proposes that there's not a single agri-food system or there's not a single view of the food system, but rather there are different and competing views of the food system because it depends on who you're talking to, what their interests are and what their visions are. They may prioritize different components of the food system. They may have different solutions uh, of the food system. And of course, they have different, different interests. So through the narratives that I identified, mainly uh, the, the narrative of the national government and the narratives of the um, agrarian movements allow me to 
look closer to what their interests are and what their visions are. So that's a little bit of, of why I use the, the narratives um, you know, as a unit of analysis. And do you think that frame could help people engaged in those debates, understand where each other is coming from and try to come to a more productive discussion about what's underlying conflict and misunderstanding? Definitely. The food narratives are emerging ones uh, in, in Colombia, because a few years back, the focus from both academics uh, like me or from policymakers on from agrarian movements was we have to address the issue of land inequality because the land inequality is huge in Colombia. So li little people have most of the land and most of the farmers in, in Colombia have very little land. And that was the conflict a few years back. The, the food debates uh, are emerging ones, and it also it's reflecting how the country has changed in the past years. And what I found in my book is that when we talk about uh, food, it can actually bring actors together around the same table, which the land debates cannot. If you ask people here in Colombia, I can go out and speak to policymakers, to the private sector, and I say, we have to discuss how we're going to address the problem of land. And then just a few people will come, right? Probably the landless, of course, will come. The state may or may not come, but then some private sectors, landowners will not come to address this problem. What I found is that if we speak about food and how can we feed either the village or the nation or the world, how can we better feed ourselves and, and how can we better implement sustainable practices in food production that brings people around the table. And for me, that's, that's one of the key findings. There are different narratives, yet they can bring us together uh, around a negotiating table to discuss the future of food in the country. A part of your book that I found very interesting was when you discussed what different people thought about food. We talk a lot about food systems um, and food and agricultural debates without really understanding what people think of when they think about food. So can you tell us a little bit about what the different stakeholders that you talk to, how they conceptualize of food? There are very different visions uh, about food. I, I really like speaking, for example, with, with indigenous communities or with African Colombian communities. When I spoke uh, about food, with them, for example, indigenous communities were telling me that they approach food from their myths, their traditional knowledge. So for them, it's it's all about the meanings that the food has, uh, the spirits of Mother Earth, the importance of of the seeds uh, as part of the of the food process, and they're thinking about feeding their families and their villages. And they say, yes, it's very nice that the government is offering us you know, to export food to other places. But we want to provide food first for our families and our, our neighbors. And then later on, we can think about, you know, providing food for, for other countries. So there was, you know, conflicting visions there between, between the national government and the indigenous communities. When speaking with African Colombian communities, the forest uh, and, and the jungle and the coast, because they, they are on the Pacific coast mainly, and the Pacific coast is a combination of you know the coastal line, but also the tropical forest. And so they were speaking about the importance of hunting and the importance of fishing and how 
the arrival of crops such as uh, cacao, for example, or soy has impacted their livelihoods, right? Because they were actually hunting, for example, some uh, animals from the tropical forest, but in fact, they were also preserving them, right? Because they were taking account of how these animals grow, develop their populations, uh, whether they're small or, or they're adults. And so they were actually not affecting you know, the, the wildlife of the tropical forest, but they're actually preserving it through food. So I found these visions uh, really, really interesting. Uh, but when speaking with farmers, uh, they approach food from a more political perspective. So they were thinking, you know, our approach to food is being against neoliberal policies that are affecting uh, our food sovereignty. And so also they not only speak about food sovereignty, but they also speak about seed sovereignty in, in the sense that um, they see, you know, the, the trading of seeds by uh, multinational companies as a, as, as a threat to um, their own systems of seed conservation that they have had for decades at the very local level. So wanted to jump back into, we mentioned food security and food sovereignty, and, and this is something we've talked to past guests about. So we wanted to dig in into this a little bit with you. These are different frameworks to reduce hunger that have different um, sort of repercussions for who has the right to control provisioning processes. Do these frameworks map neatly onto the Colombian context? Yeah, so I, I set out uh, to, to explore the differences between food sovereignty and food security with a binary perspective. I'm thinking that there will be a clash between the two. But in practice, what I found is that you know these these two terms or these two practices live uh, together and they are like actually quite intertwined. Particularly, I found interesting the the government side of food security and, and food sovereignty, because and I'm going to refer now to to the peace accord, which I have touched very little on so far. So the the, the peace accord was negotiated between 2013 and 20. Uh, 16 between guerrilla group FARC and the national government. So in, in these negotiations, the very first chapter of the peace negotiations was rural reform. And in rural reform, it of course includes and it addresses the issue of, of land distribution. However, food play a very important role in, in these peace negotiations because there were the FARC, uh, the guerrilla group FARC, they they brought the term of food sovereignty and they wanted to frame the, the rural reform chapter under the principle of food sovereignty. And by that, they were meaning you know, the importance of domestic production, the, the importance of agroecological production, the importance of people deciding what to eat in the country. But the government didn't like that term. They thought it was not appropriate to frame the peace accord uh, rural reform chapter in terms of food sovereignty. So they brought the, the framework that, that the Colombian government has been using, which is food security, right? And food security defined along the terms of the FAO. Uh, and that was a, a policy that was established in Colombia from 2008. So there was a clear clash between the terms of food sovereignty and food security in the context of the peace negotiations. What happened? They 
were not able to reach an agreement on which of these terms was going to be used. And so they found common ground by using the term of the right to food. And I think this is quite interesting because the, the right to food actually embraces elements from food security and embraces elements from food sovereignty. So the framework under which the peace accord is now established and now operating is the right to food. And if you're curious to learn more about these concepts and the debates surrounding them, you can visit our website and check out the table explainer, What is Food Sovereignty?, where we draw out some of the differences between food sovereignty, food security, agroecology, and the right to food. Felipe's own research really showed how fluid some of these concepts are, as he found speeches from the Colombian Minister of Agriculture wishing to recover the food sovereignty of Colombia, and agrarian movements also speaking about the importance of food security. And this is a little bit where what Jennifer Clapp argues in her research is they cannot exclude each other. They actually can complement each other. And the importance is how do we go about producing food in sustainable terms and you know, in, in, in appropriate social conditions? Just to add to, to what I just mentioned of these debates, when speaking, for example, to an African-Colombian leader, he said, you know, I really don't know about this thing of, of food sovereignty. This is just the name others are using. So we use it so that we can communicate. But, you know, we were doing this eating locally and preserving our food and dish traditions even before the food sovereignty term arrived. And so, yeah, I thought, I thought that, was, that was really interesting. That's really interesting. And just to kind of stay on this a little bit longer, academics tend to use tools or language that they know, and they apply it onto different contexts. And we just did that with the food sovereignty and food security. But of course, it also has real implications, especially when an unexpected actor would use a term that you wouldn't think would align with them as much. I was wondering if you had any other examples of, of people trying to put a certain academic framework or context onto the Colombian food system landscape. Yes. So one of the terms that I, I applied in my research was the approach of food regime uh, and food regimes in, in terms of these global food circulation patterns that change in different points of time. And where I found, you know, I wanted to apply this to the case of, of Colombia and it somehow, you know, applied in, in terms of, yes, there are Colombia is exporting, you know, tropical products to the U.S. and importing food excellence from the U.S. But I think it can miss the point in, in several parts, right? Because it, it does not include, for example, the interests of the private sector or, you know, the, the domestic diversity. So these, these are terms that are used in a, in a broad sense to describe global processes. But very often, you know, these ideas can also miss what's happening, you know, at the domestic level and at the very local level. So what I found was, in fact, there are diverse views and there's a lot of diversity on the ground that is, is not necessarily speaking to these global processes, right? So the global processes are occurring, are happening, can be somehow explained by certain theories. But in terms of, of the food regime approach, I found that it was missing some points, what particularly when uh, analyzing the more national and local levels. So we're just talking about how things might get mistranslated across scales. Sometimes Latin America is portrayed as this kind of homogeneous landscape, and certainly every nation or even 
where the borders are drawn could be contentious and there's different histories within the region. So I was wondering what is unique and different about Colombia's story compared to the rest of Latin America and what is similar and perhaps what lessons can be learned from each other. So there are a few elements that we can we can draw from my analysis. If we touch on food sovereignty, for example, countries such as Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Nicaragua had very vibrant agrarian movements that advocated for food sovereignty in their countries uh, a few years back. And they managed to include food sovereignty either in their constitutions or in their national policies. And these are ongoing processes in, in each of these countries that I just mentioned. My perspective is that Colombia wanted to, to follow that path of formalizing or institutionalizing food sovereignty. And hence why agrarian movements were advocating for uh, creating food sovereignty policies, but that was not possible. So Colombia's story starts to change a little bit compared to the other countries in the region in terms of now the framework that it's going to be used from, you know, from the 2016 onwards is the right to food. And we will have to wait a few years to see what the implications are. But this is what the state is. Secondly, Latin America is the top agricultural producer of the world. And this is important to mention for, for a few reasons. Latin America is today producing more agricultural products than the US and Canada together, or than the Euro European Union together. And this is mainly driven by, by the demand of food, feed, uh, and fuel globally. And the elite countries in this production are Brazil, of course, because you know it's a huge country, a huge uh, agricultural powerhouse, and by Argentina. And so what other countries in the region, including Colombia, uh, want to do is follow that path of becoming agricultural powerhouses for, for exporting food, feed, and fuel around the world. Uh, not only uh, Latin America is, is, the, is the top producer, but it also has the, the most biodiverse region of the world, which is the Amazon. And uh, agriculture and food are threatening deforestation and biodiversity loss uh, in the region. You know, this expansion of agriculture is, is also exacerbating social inequality. And so I think the lessons that we can, you know, learn is Latin America going to be able to feed the nations, feed the world, continue this uh, economic or agricultural expansion without affecting biodiversity and addressing these social inequalities that have been exacerbated over the last years. So Colombia tells an important story of Latin America in that it's trying to follow the path of food provisioning. And there's a lot of politics involved in that process. And also a question we like to ask all of our guests is, do you think that there's issues in food systems debates that are getting too much attention? And sort of counter to that, are there things that we should be discussing more? Yeah, I think at least in Colombia, one thing that, that is not getting much attention is where is food coming from? Maybe in other places that this is getting more attention, right? But for example, the, the flatbread, you know, the arepa that we eat here is, is just, you know, like a flatbread made of corn or made of wheat. It's an essential part of, of our dishes. We are very proud of it. 
and you know it, it, it features in in every other dish that we eat here in Colombia. But what we are not realizing and is what is not being in the debate is where is the primary produce coming from. So now we're very proud of this flatbread and many other dishes, but these are imported agricultural products. So I think that's a very important part that we're not speaking about. Also, the traceability of food. There was a, a recent report by Think Tank that showed how the meat that is being consumed, like sold here in the supermarkets in Bogota, is actually coming from the outskirts of the Amazon region, which is a national protected part. And so people are going, you know, very happy to supermarkets to buy their lunch, to, to buy their food, to buy meat, but people are not realizing where that meat is coming from. And so I think we need to speak more about traceability and where is food coming from. And one more question that we ask all our guests is, what knowledge and evidence do you draw from in your own research and work? I find that, you know, that there, there are different types of knowledges, you know, involved in, in this context. You know, the, the indigenous knowledge is, is very important because they have been preserving agrobiodiversity, uh, you know, for thousands of years. So that knowledge probably is not always uh, accepted by Western perspectives of food. But I think that should be respected. I, as an academic, you know, draw, try to draw on, on different knowledges that, that I find uh, on the field. And I try to value uh, them all because they are all contributing important, important elements. How do you think your own personal background impacts how you understand the history in the present? I think that's an essential part uh, of research. I think had I not met these agrarian leaders 15 years back, my research would have been very different. So my own professional journey of being in the field, meeting these agrarian leaders, even before I was doing academic research, impacted you know my own work because now I know there are stories and there are people behind the politics, behind the terms, beyond all of these sometimes superficial terms and debates that, that we're talking about. There are people and there are stories of these people that have struggled for years. And so I think it has actually enriched and contributed a lot to my own research journey. Thank you so much for, uh, for speaking with us, Felipe. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been uh, delightful to speak with you guys. And just a reminder, if you'd like to get much more into the weeds than we did in this conversation, you can, of course, pre-order Felipe's book and also visit the book's website at thepoliticsoffoodprovisioning.com, where you'll find some very positive reviews and some additional material that did not make it into the book itself. And that wraps up another episode of the Feed Podcast presented by Table. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us wherever you listen. And if you have a comment or question, you can reach out to us on our website, tabledebates.org. We're going to be wrapping up our theme of scale in the food system in a few more episodes. We're trying something new and would love to hear from you to help shape our final episode. Did you learn anything new, surprising, or something that challenged your preconceived notions of scale? Did you strongly disagree or agree with something you heard? You can either send us an email or you can record yourself in a quiet room 
and send your message to podcast at tabledebates.org. We really look forward to hearing from you. This episode was edited and mixed by Matthew Kessler with invaluable help, as always, from the extended table community. Music by Blue Dot Sessions, and we'll be back in your feed in a few weeks.